So we come to a section in First Peter dealing with primarily with elders, <clears throat> but it has to do with serving God willingly, and that's what we need to look at, and that's what we need to understand as Christians as a whole, but more poignantly pointed to uh, elders from an elder being Peter. So we're going to look at that this evening, make sure I'm with where I'm supposed to be. Yes, chapter 5 and verse 1, let's just read this together. I, I was, again, trying to be ambitious and go all the way to verse 7, 8, 9, but I did not want to rush, so we're going to be looking at four verses tonight, but let's just read those together here, follow along with me. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. God, I ask one more time that you would please fill me with the Holy Spirit of God, that you'd give me power from on high, and that you would help me to be accurate with your word this evening, that we all would be encouraged where needed, changed where needed, and help us to understand this for the glory of Christ. Amen. First point is walking alongside, not walking over. And that is something um, that church leaders need to understand and remember, is that as elders, as um, servants, under shepherds, we need to be walking alongside the sheep, not walking over the sheep. We've all heard stories or we've all been in situations of leaders who will not walk alongside and oversee, but will walk over the sheep. It's noteworthy that Peter, who is an apostle, now calls himself an elder among other elders. Peter, in this final section of the letter, first addresses the leaders of the flock. So we we come to the final stretch here, and he addresses the leaders, and then We see in verse 5, he'll address you younger men. Likewise, do this, humble yourselves, and and so on. There is a a shift in focus here from the sufferings and persecutions from outside the local church to matters within the local church, which at times, in some situations, that can be just as bad as being out in the world. I'm sure we've all heard that, maybe been a part of that, and and thankfully have gotten out of such situations. But indeed, there is a shift of focus. And because sufferings and persecutions from the world, they put a strain on a local church. They can put a strain on believers. Thus, Peter first focuses on the leadership of the church, first and foremost. And he refers to himself in a threefold way. A fellow elder, 
a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory of Christ. I read to you um, a little bit here. I have a, a few quotes, uh, as as normal, um, from uh, two theologians in particular on First Peter. One being Tom Schreiner, and the other uh, Daniel Doriani, both modern day scholars, uh, but they have some good work when it comes to First Peter. Benefited me, so I figured it would benefit you as well. Um, Here's what Tom Schreiner says. The word elders is often used in the New Testament to refer to those who had leadership positions in the church. We understand that. The church or churches in Jerusalem had elders. Um, We see that in the book of Acts. You can read that throughout. According to Acts chapter 14 and verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in all the churches visited during their first missionary journey. When a contingent of elders visited Paul from Ephesus, they were called elders. The person who is sick and needs prayer is encouraged to summon the elders of the church for prayer and anointing, according to James uh, chapter 5. The pastoral epistles, epistles show that elders functioned in Ephesus and were to be appointed in Crete. Every piece of evidence we have shows that the elders were widespread in the early church. So why does that need to change? It should not. They are mentioned by different um, mentioned by different authors: Luke, Paul, Peter, and James. They stretch over a wide region of the Greco-Roman world, from Jerusalem, Palestine, the whole of Asia Minor. It is likely that elders function as a plurality in the churches, since the term is always plural. And in Acts chapter fourteen, verse twenty-three, says the elders were appointed for them in each church. Further, the elders who visited the sick in James were plural, but the elders who visited were almost certainly from one local church. So again, just some little background for us as we consider uh, elders. And Peter considers himself a fellow elder. Now, that does not mean that Peter's no longer apostle. He still is an apostle chosen by Christ. But when he calls himself a fellow elder, he's identifying with the leader's of the church. He was not emphasizing his authority as an apostle, uh, even as he was a part of the inner three with Jesus. This shows his growth. This shows his modesty, uh, his character, his example as he prepares to address leaders in the church. Um, He wasn't given his resume. He wasn't name dropping either, which both are very annoying, by the way. Um, elder, of course, is a customary term for church leaders. Calling them elders, or uh, presbyteroi, is also making them aware of their responsibility, as he reminds them of how to do so in verse 2. So he's a fellow elder, writing to elders. He's also the apostle. And this is not the same Peter we see in Acts chapter 2, This is, or um, in the Gospels. This is the Peter we see after Acts chapter 2, filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a grown-up Peter, for lack of a better way of putting it. And he's also, he considers himself a fellow elder, he's also a witness of the sufferings of Christ. This is an intentional reminder. As Peter, 1 Peter has much to do with suffering in the life of the Christian. And we've looked at that time and time again. Suffering in the life of a Christian and its pathway to glory. Peter was not insisting here that he was a witness of all all aspects 
of the physical sufferings of Jesus. As some claim that that's what he's referring to here. Uh, we're going to go to Matthew 26 in a moment. Peter observed Jesus' ministry, saw the opposition firsthand, was there when he was arrested, and may have seen the crucifixion from a distance. But he's not claiming here that he saw all the sufferings of Christ firsthand. Go to Matthew chapter 26. Let's be reminded of who Peter was way back when, right before um, he abandoned Christ. Matthew 26, we'll start in verse uh, 35, I think. Yeah, we're just going to read a few texts here. Matthew 26 and verse 35. Remember what Peter said? Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. And remember what Jesus said right before that. Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then we see what took place there, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed and he continued to fall on the ground in agony as he prayed. And we will cover that in detail, Lord willing, when we get there in our study in John. But look at verse 47. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whoever I kiss, he's the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? At that time Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and and fled. But we'll see Peter again here, verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. And we know the account of what happened. Um, Peter saw this and then Peter was confronted. Look at verse 69. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. And he denied it before, before all of them saying, I do not know what you're talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said, those who were, who were there. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you are one of them. Even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear. I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. 
So just a little background again of who Peter was before. And this is the man that God used in a mighty way as we are studying this now. He calls himself as well a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Some scholars take this pointing back to the transfiguration and some to the resurrection. But it seems very likely here Peter is speaking of a future glory, not something in the past. The glory to be revealed, the second coming of Christ, who he is also a partaker of as we consider his description. A fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. He is walking alongside them, not walking over them. Peter is standing alongside the elders, not above them. He's not stooping down. He is raising them up before exhorting them. Here's another quote from Daniel Doriani. I'd like to read this for you as well. We consider who Peter was and how he was used. Peter's not denying his unique role as a witness of Jesus. As he proclaims in 2 Peter chapter 1, he was and therefore is an eyewitness of Jesus' majesty. But Peter wants to stress his solidarity with his fellow elders, and he can legitimately do so. After all, Peter was hardly a perfect leader. He contributed to Jesus' suffering. This is what we just read Matthew, really. He fell asleep when Jesus asked him to stand beside him in his anguish in Gethsemane as he faced his death and separation from the Father. Hours later, after Jesus' arrest, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. Hours like these could lead one to ask how Peter dares to present himself as a fellow elder. Indeed, Peter's case can explain how anyone dares to be called or to call himself an elder or leader. In a way, the church has leaders because God appointed some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, as well as elders. Yet Peter illustrates the principle that no one, not even an apostle, deserves to lead. Again, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. He did so in Jesus' darkest hour. Despite Jesus' prior warning, he told him this is what what was going to happen. Despite promising that he would never betray Jesus, and despite his position as a leader and an example, beyond doubt, Peter's actions disqualified him for church leadership. Yet, here he is, an apostle and an elder, shepherd and an overseer. He regained his position because Jesus reinstated him after his failures. After the resurrection, Peter and other uh, fishing disciples returned to the Sea of Galilee, Galilee, and Jesus met them there. Remember the account. Jesus asked him, Simon, do you truly love me? The question was fair. Peter had claimed that he loved Jesus more than anyone else did. Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Yet Peter did fall away, even swearing an oath that he had never known Jesus. Peter had denied Jesus three times, so Jesus questioned him three times. Do you love me? Jesus wasn't mocking Peter's failure. Rather, Peter had denied Jesus three times, so Jesus asked three times, Do you love me? This allowed Peter to declare three times, I love you, Lord. You know I love you. That, in turn, lets Jesus reinstate Peter three times. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. This was 
Peter's restoration. Gives a lot of hope for simple fellow elders today. Peter was banged up. He did, he suffered, he was banged up, he denied Christ, he failed, and God used him in a mighty way. Too many today in leadership think that they're all that in a bag of chips, and they're not. We have to remember who we are and who we stand before. Walking alongside, not walking over. Also, secondly, tending the flock, not taking advantage of the flock. Tending the flock, not taking advantage of the flock. Verse 2, so Peter says this exhortation to them, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. So let's break this down a little. Tend to the flock of sheep. Jesus used the same word when he spoke to Peter at the Sea of Galilee. No doubt this was in Peter's mind. Paul used uh, similar words to the elders um, in Acts chapter 20. Those among you to whom you exercise oversight, those who are entrusted to the elders are those who are part of the local church. Those who are, who the elders here are to shepherd. Those who are members of this church and their families. That is who we are are entrusted to us as elders. Covenant members of the local church, not drifters, or casual attenders. The flock of God, the people belong to God, not to the elders. This is not our church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. This is the church that Christ shed his blood for. It is his church. And we are to shepherd God's flock. Luther rightly argues that we shepherd God's flock by preaching the gospel. First and foremost... I would add. Secondly, exercising oversight or serving as overseers. This is another function of the elders. An overseer, also known as an under-shepherd, also known as an elder, also known as a leader, also known as a pastor. These are all the same same individual, uh, same thing. Just different words to describe. An elder and a pastor, same thing. God's flock, not man's flock. Men, as we know, fail. God does not. Never does. And as elders, elders are to uh, shepherd and tend to the flock, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Not like the shepherds of Ezekiel 34, which is good to be reminded of as well, briefly this evening. Ezekiel 34, where Ezekiel has some very strong words. Well, the Lord does. He says this to Ezekiel. And of course, we will not read the whole chapter, but I would encourage you to read verse 11 and following on your own time to see the restoration that takes place. Verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. 
Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Now consider the the sheepfold analogy here, the illustration, the picture of actual sheep. Nor have you sought for the lost, but with force, force and with severity you have dominated them. Right? Walking all over them. Not attending as they ought to. <clears throat> they were scattered for a lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth. And there was no one to search or seek for them. Notice again whose flock it is there. It says it. Twice, verse 6, my flock, my flock. This is God's, the Lord speaking. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely, because my flock has become a prey, my flock has become food for all the beasts of the field, for a lack of the shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. That's some serious words, some strong words uh, for those in a position of uh, shepherding who would do so with um, motives that are not rightly that are sinful motives um, sh- shepherding the flock with harshness and brutality and caring only for self and not for the sheep elders are to serve with a willing desire not for sordid gain but with eagerness the compensation for vocational elders was practiced early on we see that in 1 Corinthians Galatians, First uh, Timothy. So we saw that. But we also saw that Paul was a tent maker as well. So we would call him at some point in time. He was bivocational. But also was the abuse of such compensation. So Peter and Paul had to warn them. And we see that in First Timothy, Titus, and Acts as well. Frederick Danker says, To serve the church... For the sake of money rather than the Lord and his people is shameful and akin to fraud. Think of that. I'm thankful as we were speaking earlier at a study, we were talking about how um, it's transparency in a local church is very important with finances so that the members can see what goes where, who goes where, where the money goes here and there. And so they can see that. Um, and who gets paid what and why, that kind of thing. Uh, a lot of places do not function that way, and that's, that's not a good thing. But the problem is not paying a churchman. The problem is the heart of the churchman. When slow-growing greed sets in, it's one thing to make money. It's another thing to serve money. And we all must take care not to uh, follow the money. And we see that in ministry as well, too. And someone will get a uh, position in a local church, and that'll be the platform until they can build to a bigger and bigger and bigger, like the, uh, the business model world. 
right? Go one business and, and stay there as long as you can, build that resume, and then go to something bigger and make more money and all of that. And false teachers and love for money go hand in hand. And we, we see that in the scripture as well. One scripture that I highlighted that I want to go to is First Timothy chapter 6. <clears throat> and I'm going the wrong way. Got to go this way. You ever open your Bible and you start reading thinking you're in one book and you realize you're in the wrong book of the Bible? <laughs> no, just me? First okay. Timothy 6. At least I'm the only one who admit it. <laughs> Chapter 6, verse... Um, let's just start in verse 3. Okay. <clears throat> if anyone advocates a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine confirming the godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and depraved of the truth, deprived of the truth, excuse me, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied, accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take. Uh, we can't take anything out of it either. For if we have food and covering for all these, we shall be content. But for those who want to get rich, they fall into temptation, and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. There's another text we went over earlier. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, not money in itself. You've heard that misused before probably. And someone will say, money is the root of all kinds of evil. Well, hold on, money is a neutral object, right? It's just there. If you put money in the table, it's right there. It's the heart of man. It's the love of it is where uh, we enter into the temptation and we enter and fall into the snare. The leaders of the flock of God are to lead and to serve willingly and not for this sordid gain. Third point, leading, not lording. We, uh, elders are to lead, not lord over people. Verse 3 of 1 Peter <clears throat> chapter 5. But with eagerness, we are to lead, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Not as oppressors, not domineering. This may come from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 20, which we're going to look at that too. It's good to turn pages in the evening, keeps you awake. Keeps me awake. <clears throat> Remember this account. Look who we find here again. Matthew chapter tw- 20 and verse 20. Consider where Peter may have remembered what he may have thought of when he was writing. 
the mother of the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right hand and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that's the example we go back to. We go back to how they approached Jesus and how Jesus rebuked them and said, No, it's not like the world. That's not how you lead. It's this is how you lead, this way. And the example, of course, is is Christ. Leading, not lording, those uh, allotted to your charge. And we could apply this as well if you you have people under you, uh, if you're an employer and you have uh, employees, and not lording it over them, but leading them. But this is, of course, speaking of the local church. Those allotted to your charge, the members of the church. And the, again, our elders, plurality. This is not a, a senior pastor and, and a youth pastor and an executive pastor. No, this is a plurality of elders who are, in, are functioning and who are pastors over a local flock allotted to them by the Lord. Everyone who comes in here and uh, becomes a member of this church, they're here by divine appointment, as we say. They're here because God has brought them here. And when they leave, it's because God is taking them somewhere. That's what we want. That's what we won't want to see is people who want to be here and say, this is where I believe God wants me. And we are to be examples to the flock, not fake, but real. Only by God's grace can we be any type of example at all. Because we speak what is from our heart, don't we? Matthew or Mark chapter 7. Out of our heart, uh, out of our mouth comes what's in our heart, right? Regardless of what type of leader one may be, there's always the issues concerning envy as well. And that is something to consider. I'm going to read this as well from Daniel Doriani. Um, This can be applied not just we consider elders, it can be considered any kind of envy. And there's a book, I haven't read it, but I've, I can't really recommend it because I haven't read it. So um, uh, The Envy of Eve by, I think, Kruger. And um, I've read parts of it before. Not, it's not related to Freddie, by the way. Um, it's, I think it's Melissa Kruger um, who wrote the book. And we've had it here in the bookshelf before. I think it's called The Envy of Eve. Nevertheless, um, 
This is what Daniel Doriani says. Sadly, the more exemplary the leader, the more likely that he or she will be both admired and attacked, adored and scorned. A beautiful life filled with light will attract a host who aspire to share in it, follow it or imitate it. Admirers want for themselves what they admire, and that wanting easily becomes envy. Any prosperity, any success will stimulate at least mild envy. But deep resentment aims to destroy every light that shines brightly. For the resentful believe that they suffer and grow dim when another person prospers and shines. That's sinful thinking right there. We should rejoice when someone prospers, our brother and sister in Christ. And we shouldn't be envious and say, I want that. The reason... And they reason, who does he think he is? Or who does she think he is? We're not talking about leadership, but who does she think she is? Or he's no better than we are. Let's bring him down to size. Resentment fuels senseless hate for athletes, speakers, politicians, business leaders, entertainers, artists, even elders and shepherds. And uh, we also say the um, uh, suburban moms as well, the cutthroat moms that can be out there uh, with high school or junior high or whatever it is. If that's you, I'm not uh, stereotyping you. I'm just saying it is a stereotype. Every day, the, the news offers a fresh version of mankind's strange delight and the collapse, even humiliation of some prominent person. Don't we see that? Oh, don't the, the news, they love that especially depending on what side of the aisle one is and the news, oh, they just wait for that moment and someone falls and yes, they cheer like it's the Super Bowl. Sometimes we as Christians can do the same thing, can't we? Envy can spur people to work harder to do the right thing, even for the wrong reasons. As Solomon puts it, and I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor, Ecclesiastes 4.4. But a great deal of envy is um, unalloyed malice. In Jesus' case, the very teachings, miracles, and compassion that led the crowds to flock to Jesus led the Pharisees to envy, hate, and to kill him. Think of that. At Jesus' trial, Pilate, hardly a sensitive man, readily saw that it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed him over uh, to be crucified. That's Mark 15. Even Pilate saw it. Public figures and leaders constantly receive praise, gratitude on the one hand, and criticism and envy on the other. Envy is a wasting and self-destructing disease. It wants whatever others have. If they seem to be stronger, smarter, prettier, wealthier, more cool, more powerful, more anything. Envy is the bitter negative to the awesome and alarming positive of setting an example for God's people. Examples in Scripture, Cain envied the favor that God showed Abel, but instead of seeking God's favor for himself, he sought to destroy the favor that Abel enjoyed by killing him. Saul envied David's praise, remember that? And Absalom envied David's throne. But the destructive character of envy of an ordinary man is never more clear than in the case of humble Moses. Fourth point, receiving and rewarding. Receiving and rewarding. And when the chief shepherd appears, again, Peter speaking to elders before he addresses 
the rest in the congregation. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Suffering is the road. Those who serve well now will be rewarded later. Those who serve as shepherds do so under the authority of the chief shepherd. Faithful stewards, a privilege and a responsibility. Those who serve by the instructions given in verse 2 through 3 will receive the unfading crown of glory at the return of Christ. The focus is not here, is not when the elder dies, but when at the return of of the Lord. So this is a reminder that their leadership is temporary. It's not forever. Each and every believer must, all of us, must, must give an account for every word and deed when we consider the second coming of Christ and when we consider rewards that may be uh, there for us, that will be for us in some ways. But we all have to give an account uh, to God And I'll give these scriptures to you. We won't go there. Uh, But Matthew 16 and 27, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, and Revelation 20 and verse 12. And as I mentioned, those um, 10 resolutions um, adapted from Jonathan Edwards that Don Whitney um, used in his book, The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, I'd encourage you to, to listen to or to read that sermon from Edwards about time because we all will stand before God and give an account, will we not? God does not treat believers as we deserve to be treated due to our sin. Praise God. Hallelujah. Think about that when you put your head on your pillow tonight. God is not treating me as I deserve, but I stand in Christ. Our deeds done in the body, our, our good deeds, will be rewarded. Unfading crown that elders will receive are contrasted with the leafy crowns given in the Greco-Roman world. And consider that as an application. No matter what we can earn on this, in this world, whatever medals or crowns or awards we can get, we can't take any of those with us. We can only store up treasures in heaven ahead. You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. No matter what you're buried with, it's not going to go with you. It'll just stay on your corpse. It is not completely clear if the crown is equivalent to eternal life here or if it is a special crown rewarding for the elders. I could, as I grappled through that, but it is, seems that it is a, indeed a, a reward for the faithfulness of, um, of a steward um, in God's church. In the other crown passages, the reward is the entrance into heaven, the Stephanos crown. And that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25, uh, several other scriptures, but I'll give you one more. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. So as we consider this, Elders are to walk alongside, not walk over the sheep. Tend to the flock, not tear apart the flock. Leading, not lording over. And we all look to receive uh, the, the rewards and we store treasures ahead, ahead in heaven. 
And I'll finalize with this here um, from Schreiner. The motivation for the leadership of elders is explained in verse 4. When Jesus, as the chief shepherd of the church, returns, they will receive a glorious crown that never fades. If elders are to shepherd the church in a godly manner, the younger members, which we will get to, and that's where the transition happens here in verse 5, now I lost my place. If elders are to shepherd the church in a godly manner, the younger members of the congregation are to submit to the leadership of the elders. And every member of the church is to live in humility since God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Our brother will come and he will lead us in one more hymn for the evening. And then I will pray for us.